listening to City is Playground, a podcast by Leadership Foundations. I get to be your host, Rick Enlow, and I'm here with Dave Hillis. Happy Advent, Dave. And to you as well, Rick. We are now leaning way into the Advent toward the new year, and mm-hmm. this is our final uh, podcast of this year. And so uh, I think it's going to be, you know, a, a, you know, you always want to have the capper, you know, on the tree uh, or, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the cherry on the on the on the dessert or whatever but this i think this is going to be a really really great treat and i in fact i'm looking at it as uh sort of like our podcasting gift to our listeners nice. for uh, for their yeah. faithful uh you know listening this year because we have the incredible uh, uh treat to have uh, father steve landry talking to us uh once again as he did last year but with you know uh you know this year's uh voice and, and poetry but we want to let's double back on that in case people didn't catch that, Dave. But uh, the idea of prayer as poetry, and uh, you know, how I, give us a little sketch as to how uh, that sort of resonated with you back when you know you first crossed paths. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a big uh, piece of my life. I can't honestly, you know, I think anymore, Rick, tell my life story to the degree that anybody wants to hear it. Um, apart from Steve as just a person uh, and then the specific gift of him introducing me to uh, the poetry. And, and I should preface that by saying that, you know, I had, I've always had a love for poetry, um, but it felt to be something that was sort of extemporaneous, right. Uh, a bit of an add on, I'd, you know, maybe read a poem here or there at different times, but, but there was no sense of it being integrated into my life uh, Mm -hmm. in any kind of, you know, sort of daily fashion. And so it was probably now close to 20 years ago that um, (laughs) I get a call from my mother-in-law who says, Hey, she goes, our, our parish priest is hosting a a prayer and poetry uh, at, uh, at St. Leo's parish. And this was before I'd become Catholic and, and uh, she goes, I want you to go with me. And my mother-in-law, Patricia Coogan, uh, has a way of saying things to you that you kind of best listen and probably obey, uh, or uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas are going to be less hospitable than they uh, <laughs> might have otherwise been. And you know, it was one of these classic kind of November nights, Rick, in the Northwest that you know is where we pay right the uh, price of our beautiful summers and falls. I mean, it yeah. was rainy and foggy and dark. And, you know, the idea of, uh, getting, uh, down to St. Leo's on this night to sit and listen to prayer and poetry with bad St. Leo's coffee was not my idea of a good time. Um, but we get there and there's probably 30 of us and, uh, you know, Steve stands up and says this, he says, well, he says, people have asked me why prayer and poetry. And he said, I realized, you know, a few years ago that as a Jesuit priest, at least part of my job description was to pray and I wasn't doing it. And, you know, I began to kind of think about, well, how might I reboot that part of my, my life? And he said, having been an English major, he said, you know, I went down to B Dalton's right. When uh, there was such a thing as B Mm -hmm. Dalton's and went to the poetry section and took out uh, the first book he saw, which of course was Auden and uh, grabbed it and, he said he read the first poem, Standing in B. Dalton's, and nothing. And he read the second poem, and then he read a third poem, and something just opened up in him. And he said by the end of reading that kind of book of poetry, he says he had gotten his prayer life back. Um, and so Steve began to you know use poetry as a way of uh, you know kind of sharing this. So I'm sitting in the audience, and of course, anybody that starts off the time by saying, you know, effectively, I don't pray very well. I mean, you know, I'm all in at that point, given my, my anemic prayer life. Um, and I was just intrigued. And so he says, so let me just read some poems tonight. And I'm going to make some commentary on how they've contributed to my prayer life. So he reads the first one and he makes some clever statements and, you know, it sounded good. And he reads another one, but the third poem uh, was by Rumi uh, called uh, the Guest House, uh, and at some point maybe we can even you know uh, read that to our listeners. But again, I, I something exploded in me. 
Um, and I should say that Steve prefaced this poem by saying, you know, in the midst of all the po uh, poets I read, there is the poet. And I remember going, really, there's a poet? I mean, like one poet. But for Steve, Romeo sits at sort of the, the top of the, the heap. Uh, and so then from there, he would have uh, a prayer and poetry every four to five months. Uh, and I, for the last now, you know, over almost 20 years, I have never missed one and have every poem that Steve has curated. Um, and so it, it, it's become an indispensable piece of just my life in Christ. Um, you know, the way I understand myself, uh, the way I can relate, I have, um, nothing like Steve, but, you know, probably about 20 poems, uh, that I've specifically memorized to incorporate, uh, into my daily prayer life. And so each one of these poems, whether it's Rilke or Rumi, uh, you know, or someone like Auden is now a part of my, my daily existence. Um, the last thing I would just say is, of course, our listeners will say, well, okay, is there any kind of relationship of poetry uh, to the city as playground? And I think there's a direct one. And oftentimes it goes back, of course, to our, you know, formidable, um, you know, kind of leader with regard to all things urban, and that's G.K. Chesterton. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Chesterton uh, was kind of musing on this idea that that maybe people don't see the city as poetical. And he's got this great quote where he says, um, essentially, the city is poetical. But the reason we fly from the city is not in reality that it is not poetical. It's that its poetry is too fierce too fascinating and too practical in its demands. <laughs> what a perfect sentence in the English language. Yeah. And it was like, that's what allowed me to connect poetry um, to the city. You know, it's not that the city isn't poetical, it, it, but that it has a kind of poetry, right? That is fierce. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you've, you know, there's some sharp edges and you've got, it's still poetical, but it's, it's got some heat to it. It's fascinating, right? It's not this simple, you know, kind of poem about, you know, cows and wheat and all of that. It's, it's, there's a complexifying kind of element to it. And ultimately, uh, and this is probably the thing that makes people, most people think that the city isn't poetical, is that the city demands practical stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. you got to do stuff, uh, but that too can be poetical. So that's kind of a long-winded way, Rick, of connecting, you know, Steve Lantry and the gift that he was to me many, many years ago to now this dominant metaphor in my life of city as playground and its poetry as well. Well, we are in for a treat as he's going to share uh, several poems with us uh, today in our final podcast of this year. And one of the things that's so cool about uh, Father Lantry, and, and I have you to thank for introducing me and, and having the opportunity to spend some time with him, but uh, it it transcends any faith tradition. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't right. sort of paint yourself, you don't paint yourself in a corner. And that's why I think that wherever we're from and wherever we're headed, uh, you know, that this idea of inviting, you know, uh, poetry and prayer and understanding prayer through poetry is, is such a cool gift. It's, it's again, part of that, uh, yeah. part of the idea that, you know, um, the, the first thing that gets lost in, in translation is poetry. That's right. You know, and I had a guy uh, was he he told me this. He said uh, that if we learned a, a, a language that we that we wasn't our first language and we were able to actually be conversant in it, we still would need a lot of help with the poetry <laughs> because, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, the nuance and and yeah. just, you know, the even the language that sometimes there's a play on words that are, you know, and that's certainly true. Yeah. Um, you know, with, with the poetry that we have. And, and that's why I think, for instance, the, the fascinating part, that's the fascinating part, you know, that you were mentioning that Chesterton talked about. So, yeah. well, Hey, before we uh, head into uh, father Steve's um, contribution to, to our lives and prayer poetry, just let me give the final year end 
appeal, and that is, uh, and also a, a thank thanks to the those of you who have contributed. But uh, this is the last podcast, and we want to invite you to consider a uh, year-end financial contribution to Leadership Foundation. So, if you listen to this podcast and and you appreciate the uh, LF work throughout the world, then we're asking you to concretely support the work and uh, and as we uh, as you make a financial contribution, you know that. Uh, it's 100% tax deductible, and it's easy to do. You just go to leadershipfoundations.org slash donate. So we really appreciate that and uh, look forward to being able to share uh, what your contribution has has turned into uh, as we continue the conversations around remarkable leadership and long-lasting change in cities throughout the world. So uh, thanks again. Without any further ado, though, let's hand the microphone over to uh, Father Steve Lantry, where uh whether you're listening to this podcast in your car at home or who knows, maybe you're shoveling snow somewhere or you're, uh, you know, pushing your feet through the sand somewhere. But uh, we invite you to uh, kind of really lean into this special time when we get to explore what it is to pray through poetry with Father Steve. Wonderful. Well, uh, greetings. Hello to any who are online to enjoy this. Uh, I want to thank uh, Dave Hillis and Noah Basket for inviting me back. Uh, they clearly are biased in my favor, so I'm grateful to them. <clears throat> Last February, uh, I was invited to do a praying with poetry session with the LF group, and uh, I'm most grateful to be invited back for another session. So it's good to be here. <clears throat> I'd like to start with uh, just a recap of what the February session was about. At that time, we spoke of poetry as a primary instrument of prayer, not something to displace any other uh, material for prayer, but an extremely useful instrument. And we looked at the, these particular aspects First of all, we looked at both the necessity and the difficulty of language. Secondly, we looked at, on the one hand, simplicity and attention, and the other hand, goals and production. And then third, we looked at obstacles to growth. So some reasons that poetry is such a help to our prayer practice would be these three. First, it is a language in a highly concentrated form, what the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge called the best words in the best order. So it's condensed, meaning it's dense. It carries a lot of meaning. Second, it is a fountainhead of images and metaphors that allow us to use our imagination. In fact, I'd venture to say we can't read either poetry or scripture without employing our imaginations. So if we see a play or watch a movie or look at a painting in an art museum, someone else has already imagined what we are going to see. But if we read a poem, as the mystical poet Rumi says, we still have to bring forward many images ourselves. And he continues, actually, my friend, what you're eating is your own imagination. The poet and critic Christian Wyman says this with great beauty and clarity. He says, we can only know God metaphorically. The Bible is quite clear about that. And the Bible is filled with metaphors. It makes sense that you would turn to the place where metaphor is used most intensely and most well, namely poems. And then he says this, this is quite an assertion. Great poems, even when they are not about religious experience, are in a way about religious experience. Why? because they give us some access to the other, to the spiritual life, the interior life.
So highly concentrated language, a fountainhead of images and metaphors, and the third reason, great poetry, to use Wyman's phrase, employs metaphors drawn from our day-to-day -day world in order to invite us to see it in a different way. And that's the key. The activation and engagement of our imagination. For what purpose? To see something differently. To remember something differently. To feel something differently. To think something differently. In other words, to open us up where we are closed. To widen us where we are narrow. To awaken us where we are numb. To enliven us where we are dead. That's, that's a lot of work that can be done simply by reading and praying with poetry. So in the first group of poems today, the focus is on the relational nature of all life. I mean, anybody who's been paying any attention to the whole climate discussion, not to say argument, is aware about the interconnectedness of everything that is on the planet. So here's a poem about the hiddenness of the God of our understanding, even within the connectedness of all things. It's a poem by Wendell Berry, and it's called The Hidden Singer. The gods are less for their love of praise Above and below them all is a spirit that needs nothing but its own wholeness, its health and ours. It has made all things by dividing itself. It will be whole again. To its joy, we come together, the seer and the seen, the eater and the eaten, the lover, and the loved. In our joining, it knows itself. It is with us then, not as the gods whose names crest in unearthly fire, but as a little bird hidden in the leaves who sings quietly and waits and sings. The relational nature of all creation is the main thought here. But this web of relationships is made most vivid, it seems to me, in the lines, it has made all things by dividing itself. You know, in this world, we love to divide people into groups, put folks into boxes. So we claim that atheists uh, deny the existence of God, theists, believe in some kind of God. Pantheists believe that there's a, a God in everything. I would uh, put myself in this last group, the panentheists, meaning that somehow God is expressed in everything. I think that's a big part of what Barry's poem is getting at. It isn't just that all things are connected because we're on the same planet, although that would be true. They're connected because they all come from the same creator. That would be his contention. And then he says this, which I find remarkable. He says, it will be whole again. Creation will be whole again. How so? In our joining, it knows itself. That's quite a claim. That's almost a claim that uh, there's a kind of incomplete aspect to the God of Barry's understanding in our joining. And of course, you don't have to be an expert on scripture to know that the ploy of the enemy of our human nature is to divide us in any way possible. So to stick with the relational theme, here are two poems that offer very different perspectives on that element most essential to our human relationships with each other 
and with the God of our understanding, whoever that God is. That element is namely trust. Both these poems are by the 13th century mystic Rumi. Here's the first one. Love is the way messengers from the mystery tell us things. Love is the mother. We are her children. She shines inside us, visible, invisible, as we trust or lose trust or feel it start to grow again. It's a great poem, a lot of things going on in it. The essential element obviously is trust. And we don't always have the same level of it, do we? Particularly if we've experienced some kind of betrayal, that's the, that's the hardest activity when it comes to trust, is experiencing a betrayal by someone close to us. But behind it, from Rumi's point of view, always is the presence, is the internal friend. And that's expressed as love. The way messengers from the mystery tell us things. Messengers from the mystery. Now there's a metaphor. In a way, it doesn't tell us anything at all. And yet it tells us quite a bit. And then he gets more concrete. Love is the mother. We are the children. That's always the relationship. And how do we experience her presence? She shines inside of us. And what determines the degree of brightness or no brightness at all, visible, invisible? It's the degree of our trust as we lose it or feel it start to grow again. So it's not a fixed state. And uh, in spite of our American way of thinking about progress, it's not an upward motion all the time in our lives. Here's another poem by Rumi along the same lines, but it really has a sharper edge to it. It goes like this. When school and mosque and minaret get torn down, we could add church, synagogue, etc. Then dervishes can begin to build their community. Not until faithfulness turns to betrayal and betrayal into trust can any human being become part of the truth. Boy, that's a strong assertion, very strong. So why is he saying that the dervishes, the Sufis, in other words, <clears throat> they can't even start to build their community until all these representative buildings of the institution, religious institution, are torn down? Why is he saying that? Well, his explanation may not seem very helpful to us. Not until faithfulness turns to betrayal and betrayal into trust, can any human being become part of the truth. Robert Bly just died in this past week, uh, one of the more famous American poets of the last century. And uh, in these retreats he did with men's groups for years, he did them with a mythologist and storyteller from Vashon Island, yeah, near Tacoma, Washington. And he did them with James Hillman, one of the better known Jungian analysts in the country who has been dead for quite a while. Bly uh, claims that in order for a person to become a mature adult, we need, as he put it, a good strong experience of betrayal. Now, I can't speak for Robert Bly. I don't know why he made the claim but I think uh, it's his way of eliminating the naivete with which many of us come into the world as young people. It's to show us something about the dark side of human experience. 
And it seems to me that Rumi is getting at that here. Institutional religion, and I don't care what the tradition is, has certain forms, certain expectations. It has a creed, uh, it has a set of beliefs and practices. And if people, especially people in the public eye, begin to deviate from those things, uh, they can experience considerable pushback. And as we know from the history of religion, simply in Western civilization, they can experience uh, mistreatment, torture, abuse, death by various means. Rumi is saying something about what a real connection to God looks like. And that part of that experience is found in fidelity being turned into betrayal. And then a kind of reconciliation, if you will, a redemption, that that betrayal turns into trust. That's a real growth experience for any human being. And until we have this experience, he's saying, we really can't become part of the truth. That's quite a claim. That would be upsetting for many people. But that's one of the things I like about not just Rumi's poetry, but poetry in general, is it constantly challenges my own categories, uh, the channels in which I like to think everything runs. It's a reminder, uh, as people in 12-step programs say, there are only two things we can be certain about regarding God. God is, and we're not. Just one other poem uh, to do with uh, religious practice. Uh, this one's not quite so sharp-edged, although it is, a, it is an ear-tugging poem. He says this, those who think the heart is only in the chest, take two or three steps and are content. The rosary, the prayer rug, repentance are paths they mistake for the destination. The rosary, the prayer rug, repentance, are paths they mistake for the destination. That's a good reminder for all of us. Uh, every tradition has its set of practices and these things are extolled and encouraged and all practices can be good, at least to some degree. But it's always a mistake to see the practice as the destination. Uh, to perform it as perfectly as possible. That's never what it's about. The whole purpose is an experience of the God of my understanding. That's the whole purpose of a practice. The practice simply offers a channel in which our own intentionality and our wills can run true. They provide a container for our intention and our desire. But as Rumi would say, finally, it's all about the presence. It's all about the inner experience of the one he calls the friend. So those are poems about relationality. So this second group of poems, uh, I've called it paradox. Uh, so an apparent contradiction, but not necessary, not necessarily. On the one hand, the beauty and intimacy of what we are invited into. And on the other side, the hardness of our hearts. Actually, I'm not sure that's right. I don't think they're on opposite sides. They're all part of the same experience. 
So here is a very sharp edged poem by Charles Bukowski. If you've read uh, Bukowski's poetry, you might be surprised that anybody might want to use it for prayer. But I actually think, I actually think he's got He's got a great way of slapping us upside the head with a two by four. And getting our attention is from a Buddhist point of view, the first and most important thing. So here's Bukowski's poem. This definitely settles on the hardness of heart experience. He calls this everywhere, everywhere. Amazing how grimly we hold on to our misery, ever defensive, thwarted by the forces. Amazing, the energy we burn, fueling our anger. Amazing how one moment we can be snarling like a beast, then a few moments later, forgetting what or why. Not hours of this or days or months or years of this, but decades, lifetimes, completely used up, given over to the pettiest rancor and hatred. Finally, there is nothing here for death to take away. Now, that's what I call a poem with a very sharp edge. So for any of us who have had an experience of deep anger, uh, not just resentment toward another person, but the experience of actually wishing them harm, minimally wishing that they could feel exactly as bad as we felt, depending on what they did. Uh, and then uh, one of the most uh, debilitating feelings that human beings can experience, namely hatred. I mean, that's, it, it's a terrible thing to live with hatred on a daily basis. It's so destructive. It's not just destructive to us spiritually in terms of our relationships. Physically, it's extremely destructive. Uh, any physician will tell you that anger and hatred combined produce a great deal of cortisol, which is extremely bad for the human heart. But in terms of the interior life, the spiritual life, whether one believes in uh, a personal God or not, um, to carry these kinds of negative feelings uh, is to live, as the opening line of the poem says, in misery. And it is to share it with other people. Uh, Aquinas is famous for saying, among other things, that good diffuses itself. It tends to spread itself around. Well, unfortunately, uh, our opposite saying of that is misery loves company. <laughs> so, you know, whatever we are, whatever we have, that's what we share. We don't share other things. So it's a good reminder we're invited into this intimate relationship with the friend, the interior presence, an experience of the divine. And we're invited to discover that also in the rest of creation. But we frequently encounter things in ourselves that stand in the way. Here's another poem by Rumi that captures some of this in a different way. It's not as sharp-edged as Bukowski's poem, but it certainly comes straight to the point. It goes like this. Every war and every conflict between human beings has happened because of some disagreement about names. It is such an unnecessary foolishness because just beyond the arguing, there is a long table of companionship set and waiting for us to sit down. What is praised is one. So the praise is one also. Many jugs 
being poured into a huge basin. All religions, all this singing, one song. The differences are just illusion and vanity. Sunlight looks a little different on this wall than it does on that wall, and a lot different on this other one, but it is still one light. We have borrowed these clothes, these time and space personalities from a light. And when we praise, we are pouring them back in. Now, I don't know how close attention you paid to the poem, but if you know anything about Islam, about the argument between the two main branches, the Shia and the Sunni traditions, you might realize that you, uh, why the Sufis are considered heretics, especially by the Shiite sect, some members of the Shiite sect. This whole thing that uh, anything about religion could be unnecessary foolishness, that would be very offensive to some devout Muslims. But the Sufis, being mystics, understand that God is above all these things somehow. And what God wants, this is certainly true in the Christian tradition, is for us to be, to use Barry's phrase, whole again, connected to each other in an open, honest, transparent, and caring way. That's what we're invited to. Yeah, I love this image. Uh, I mean, it's a prominent image in Christian scripture. It's such an unnecessary foolishness because just beyond the arguing, there is a long table of companionship set and waiting for us to sit down. It's like God is all ready. You know, the meal is prepared. The question is, are we willing to sit down with anyone and with everyone? Uh, in our tradition, uh, it's not only one of our greatest claims about the public ministry of Jesus, but it's also one of the most uh, controversial actions that he performed in that ministry. It generated terrible opposition from the religious authorities. And that is the fact that he would speak and sit with anyone. He would touch anyone. He would allow himself to be touched by anyone. And worst of all, from his critics' point of view, he would sit and eat with anyone, public sinners, didn't matter who they were. This was terribly offensive to the religious authorities, not least because part of the basis of their self-understanding is that they were the insiders and that sinners were the outsiders. Jesus consistently wanted to bring the outsiders inside to join in the community. And this is what Rumi is good at, getting at. So religious squabbles have created uh, terrible suffering in the history of the world, and not just in Western civilization, all over the planet. And he claims as a mystic, these differences are just illusion and vanity. And then that marvelous image about how sunlight looks different on different walls, depending on the material they're made out of or the color they are. But it's all one light. That's the claim. For those of us who are monotheists, we think there's only one God, and that's most of the largest religions in the world. Uh, God is light, as the author of the first letter of St. John says, there is no darkness in God at all. So if there's only one God, then all these religious perspectives and traditions are really part 
of only one light. So it's a poem that points in the opposite direction from Bukowski's poem. So I don't know if we if we'll have enough time for this, but uh, I'm going to read this poem anyway. Uh, it doesn't seem connected to any other part of this presentation. <laughs> it's just that I've been drawn back to this poem time and again in the last couple of months. It's a poem by Edward Hirsch, who comes out of the Jewish tradition, and it's entitled, When We See God. The syntax is a little difficult, so I'll take my time with it. But he's on to something here. And also, I love his reference to uh, categories that we associate with the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Beatitudes. I love the fact that he puts those in. So when we see God, suppose the Holy One whose face we seek is not so much invisible as we are ill-equipped to apprehend his grave proximity. Suppose our fixed attention serves mostly to make evident the gap between what's apprehended and what's there. The book there on the stand proves arduous to open, entombed as it is in layers of accretion, layers of gloss applied to varied purpose, hardly any laudable. So many guarded ploys to keep the terms quite still, predictable. Which is why I'm drawn to, why I love the way the rabbis teach. I love the way they read, opening the book with reverence for what they've seen before, joy for what lies waiting. I love the word's ability to rise again from chronic homiletic burial. Say the one, that's capital O, say the one is not so hidden as we are kept by our own conjuncture, blinking, puzzled, leaning in without result. Let's say the meek, the poor, the merciful all suspect his hand despite the evidence. As for those rarest folk, the pure in heart, intent on what they touch, they see him now. It's such a great poem, and there's so much going on in it. I have to say, from a personal uh, point of view, these two lines at the end of the third stanza, as a person who preaches with some frequency, uh, the first time I read this poem, these hit me pretty hard. I love the words ability to rise again from chronic homiletic burial. <laughs> well, if you're a person who gives homilies, that's something you would take to heart. <laughs> and then his wonderful observation, the book. Now he's talking about the Hebrew scriptures, but it could be any uh, set of scriptures. It could be the Bhagavad Gita, it could be the Vedas, it could be uh, the, the Buddhist texts, it could be the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it could be the Christian scriptures, it can be the Quran. So it doesn't matter what the book is on the stand. It always proves arduous to open. He's not just talking about physically opening the book. Entombed as it is, this is key, in layers of accretion, layers of gloss applied to varied purpose, hardly any of those purposes are laudable. So let's face it, uh, if you stood the religious books of the world on one side, and then you stood the commentaries on the other, 
the commentaries would represent considerably more pages. <laughs> so we do tend to fall into the point of view that we know more than we actually do. Yes, and so many guarded ploys to keep the terms quite still predictable. That's the institutional activity. Now, institutional religious activity, much of it is very good, but it isn't all good, certainly not all the time. Uh, so often, uh, such activity is a matter of protecting the status quo and refusing to be challenged by new information, new data, new human experience, whatever it is. Anyway, it's a wonderful poem. And then that last line is so marvelous. As for those rarest folk, the pure in heart, intent on what they touch, namely the text, they see him now. What a wonderful line. Okay, well, on to the last group of poems. Uh, and I call these poems of challenge and hope. And I did that quite deliberately. Uh, one does not have to watch a lot of television or read a lot of newspapers. Really, one simply has to be out in the street around other people to realize how successful, to use St. Ignatius's phrase, how successful the enemy of our human nature has been at dividing us. Uh, the divisions in our country <laughs> are like the weather. Uh, we all talk about them, but not much is being done about them. Uh, and being divided makes it increasingly difficult for different groups, whether it's political groups or social groups or economic groups, to act on behalf of the common good, which at least according to the constitution of this country is supposed to be the focus of our activity. It's what is best for the most people, knowing that we cannot serve every need in the same way. So, these are poems of challenge, but also poems of hope. Just to say something briefly about hope. I remember that I'm a Catholic, so of course I can't remember the book, chapter, and verse. But somewhere in his letters, Paul talks about hoping against hope. Actually, I know it's in 1 Thessalonians that he said, we should not behave as people who have no hope. And then in another letter, he talks about hoping against hope. He's not talking about hope the way we use it when we mean, I hope I get a good grade on the test. I hope I get the job. I hope this relationship works out. Perfectly appropriate human hopes. That's not religious hope. That's not spiritual hope. Spiritual hope is grounded in the intentionality of the God of our understanding. That's where real hope is found. Uh, and if I can quote uh, Luke's gospel, when she goes to see, when Mary goes to see Elizabeth, Elizabeth said, blessed is she who believed that the promises made to her would be fulfilled. That is the action of hope, real hope. Hope lies it's placed in the one making the promise. So anyway, this poem is by Liesel Muller, and uh, you can find it in Garrison Keillor's first volume of Good Poems. And it's entitled, Hope. It hovers in dark corners before the lights are turned out. It shakes sleep from its eyes and drops from mushroom gills. 
It explodes in the starry heads of dandelions turned sages. It sticks to the wings of green angels that sail from the tops of maples. It sprouts in each occluded eye of the many-eyed potato. It lives in each earthworm segment surviving cruelty. It is the motion that runs from the eyes to the tail of the dog. It is the mouth that inflates the lungs of the child that has just been born. It is the singular gift we cannot destroy in ourselves, the argument that refutes death, the genius that invents the future, all we know of God. It is the serum which makes us swear not to betray one another. It is in this poem, trying to speak. Wonderful poem, wonderful poem. All these images she pulls from our day-to-day -day experience, we can identify with every one of them. Dark corners before the lights are turned out. Mushroom gills, we've all seen those. The starry heads of dandelions turned sages. What a wonderful image for those seeds that are just about to come from your neighbor's lawn to your lawn to produce what? More dandelions. And then uh, the wings of green angels that sail from the tops of maple trees. What do we call those helicopters, right? The many-eyed potato, the earthworm segment, surviving cruelty. The motion that runs from the eyes to the tail of the dog. Just wonderful images. And then the mouth that inflates the lungs of the child that has just been born. That is an experience of hope. The singular gift we cannot destroy in ourselves. And this is my favorite line in the poem, the argument that refutes death. Not a logical argument, certainly, wouldn't hold up for one minute in any court of law or any class in logic. But in terms of belief, it holds up magnificently. The argument that refutes death. All we know of God. Really wonderful. And I wonder why she puts this at the end, the serum, the serum. We know what a serum is, don't we? It's a cure. The serum that makes us swear not to betray one another. Good grief, we could certainly use a little more of that serum in our social and public lives. Yes, it's in this poem, Trying to Speak to anybody who reads the poem. So here's another poem about hope. This is by Sheena Pugh. And it's also from Garrison Keillor's first of three volumes called Good Poems. And it's simply entitled, Sometimes. Pessimists would not like this poem. Sometimes things don't go, after all, from bad to worse. Some years, Muscadel faces down frost. Green thrives. The crops don't fail. Sometimes a person aims high and all goes well. A people sometimes will step back from war, elect an honest person, decide they care enough that they can't leave some stranger poor. Some people become what they were born for. Sometimes our best efforts do not go amiss. Sometimes we do as we meant to. The sun 
will sometimes melt a field of sorrow that seemed hard frozen. May it happen for you. It's a wonderful poem and a great poem to pray with. Because lots of things uh, go wrong in our world. Lots of things are wrong. And because of our uh, overly efficient means of communication, we are aware of more and more of them every day. Uh, they can be quite overwhelming. They produce a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry and concern. And they can easily damage our capacity to trust ourselves, others, the God of our understanding. But sometimes our best efforts do not go amiss. Sometimes we do as we meant to. And then that wonderful final image. The sun will sometimes melt a field of sorrow that seemed hard frozen. May it happen for you. You know, uh, if we have a prayer practice each day, and sometimes we pray for other people, we think about people who are in need or uncertain or suffering in any way, and we lift them up before the God of our understanding, or we simply reverence them in our hearts. That's a way of hoping on their behalf. It's a way of changing our own hearts as well. Yeah, it's a way of increasing our own experience of hope. Very perceptive poem. Something that invites us to remember that we're not complete yet. And that's always a good thing to come out of our prayer practice. So, well, more could be said about that, but let me finish with this last poem. Uh, this was a very limited publication. You probably will not have heard of the volume, A Woman at the Well, and you probably will not have heard of the author, Sister Annette Moran, uh, the St. Joseph Sisters of Carondelet. They're from the Midwest. She uh, got her degree in theology at the Jesuit School in Berkeley, California, and she taught uh, in the theology and religious studies department at Carroll College in Helena, Montana for many years until she finally, after a 10 year battle, she succumbed to bone cancer. I won't go into how she and I became friends, but uh, I had no clue until after she died that she had ever written a line of poetry. Uh, she definitely had a gift. So this poem does not have a title, but I think it's about hope and I think it's about discipleship. And I don't just mean that in the Christian sense. I mean, discipleship in trying to draw close to, uh, as Rumi says, the one who speaks to the ear in the chest. So this is by Sister Annette Moran. You're going to get the New Testament reference right away, I think. We have fished all night and have caught nothing. The waters have been troubled and the sky, no stars. We are silent with each other, preoccupied with our own despair. What is it about you, Lord, that sends us seaward in the dawn to try again? Just to uh, share with you one of my own biases, if there's any rhetorical device I enjoy most, 
it is the rhetorical question. I think uh, I've always thought a good question is worth any hundred answers. Actually, the older I've gotten, the more I think a good question is worth any thousand answers. What is it about you, Lord, that sends us seaward in the dawn to try again? What is it? That's a great question to sit with in one's own prayer practice. Which reminds us that finally it isn't about us. It's the one who invites us. It's the one who draws us. If you want a reference from Isaiah uh, or Ezekiel, it's the very, very soft voice at the edge of the mouth of the cave. It's that one. Or again, Rumi's image. It's the one who speaks to the ear in the chest. In one of his poems, Rumi says, I should sell my tongue and buy a thousand ears when that one steps near to speak. That's a great line. It's a great way to go into any prayer practice, but I think particularly praying with poetry. It's a good way to enter. So I encourage uh, all of us to, in the presence of whatever God we believe in, to cultivate our desire to be hopeful in that very specific way, that way that transforms our, our hearts, our lives, our perceptions, and therefore our relationships with all other people and with all other beings. God bless you all. Have a great rest of Advent and enjoy the season of the Nativity. Okay, Dave, I don't think that uh, I have anything else to say now after Father Steve has shared. Uh, that's one thing about, uh, you know, uh, following a poet is you think, okay, well, back to prose now. Uh, but uh, yeah. what, a, what a cool uh, gift, really like a gift, a year-end gift to our listeners to have yeah. Father Steve here. Yeah, just to build on that, Rick, I, without kind of throwing my oldest son under the uh, the bus, uh, and I won't go into a lot of detail on this story, but there was a particular event that took place for the Hillis family that we were all a part of, and it was uh, Jordan, my youngest son's, uh, uh, coming into the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And there was a particular thing that happened with regard to, I mean, literally the moment that Steve began to lay hands on Jordan, um, and this was in August, this just incredible rainstorm uh, began to come in and you know it, it was so warm at that moment that all the doors were open in the church there was so much water that the ushers had to go back and try to close the doors to push the water out mm. uh, and then of course uh, the service ends the rainstorm ends and we're down uh, having a dinner that night to celebrate and it was of course cigar time and uh, so we're all out there and Patrick being Patrick he kind of looks around, he says, hey, how about that rainstorm, right? And like, we got to talk about this. And there's this moment of quiet and Steve takes a long drag of his cigar and says, you know, Patrick, there's some things in life that are better left not commentated on. How about if we just sit here and enjoy the grace of God? <laughs> yeah. And Patrick was both completely and utterly like that's exactly right and you know and kind of put it in his place all at the same time so i think about that story a lot when we just have what we just had right mm -hmm. we, you do you're right it's just like you know what let that kind of just saturate your soul yeah and uh enough said yeah and that was you know, well, that's the rainstorm right there. So we there thank you, you for joining us for it and hope that you feel uh, valued uh, as we plan this podcast to be kind of the finale for the year as a special gift. And thanks to Steve once again for yeah. who, who he is and what he does. 
And uh, here's our final recommendation. We try to end our podcast. Well, we don't try. We actually, we end it with a recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's someone who could recommend what uh, might kind of nudge them toward seeing the city as a playground and uh, begin to kind of have that vision that, of the city that God would have. And uh, sometimes it's a book, a movie, or experience. But today, we got a recommendation from Celia Vigil. And Celia is uh, um, uh, one of the students that is involved in in uh, leadership foundations. And, and she's a senior at Whitworth in Spokane, Washington, and an associate and fellow at the Global Office over this past year. So um, she's a treasure and she has a recommendation for the day. Uh, so my recommendation would be, I think it's really important to experience your city. We talk a lot about this vision of the city as a playground, as being a place where, you know, the elderly can gather and talk and laugh in like this communal space and children play and their families present. But I think it's important um, to like experience that now, even though it's something we kind of hope for. And in, in my experience, connecting with, you know, humanity and people who are very different from you can help help you build kind of that vision in your mind and that love for your city. So, um, you know, whether it's volunteering at a senior center or with children, you know, just kind of building those intergenerational relationships because it's so easy to just get trapped in like our bubble of people who are only the same age as me or only the same group or class or whatever it is. And as a college student right now, it's really easy to believe that like the entire world is just 18 to 22 year olds. So it's something that definitely takes a lot of work. Um, when I was a teenager, my mom took my sisters and I to volunteer at a senior center, and it was just a really profound experience. Um, over like the few, the times we visit, I like learned how to play a bunch of really cool card games, and people just love to share their stories and their talents with us. And it was a, a really beautiful experience. And I just find that I feel more whole as a person and like, love my city more um, when I'm connecting with people outside of my age group. Wow. Thanks so much, Cecilia, for that recommendation. And thank you, Dave, for letting me host this podcast. And uh, I can't imagine, um, you know, how we can have a better uh, time, but I think we will in uh, 2022. So happy new year. Happy new year to you, Rick. It's been very enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you.